Uh, We are thrilled to have you guys this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 31 this morning. Exodus chapter 31. Beginning in verse 1, Exodus 31, beginning in verse 1, uh, we find, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called my na- by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to tackle a topic we don't normally talk about. Uh, And Father, I pray this morning as we open your word, as we jump into it, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us, that your spirit would teach us, that you would lead us and direct us. And I pray you'd help us to have a sense of exactly how you've wired us and how you've called us uh, to walk alongside of you. And Father, as we look specifically at the arts this morning, Lord, I pray that you really would blow us away. Pray that you would uh, expand some boxes that we've not expanded before. Uh, that you'd give us a sense of direction and encouragement that maybe we've not had before. And Father, in the midst of tests, in the midst of a lot of stuff starting to crank up in the semester, Lord, I pray that you'd just meet us. I pray that for about 30 minutes, Lord, that you'd remove distractions and that you'd allow us just to really focus in on what you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that my words would be yours and that you would use this time and accomplish whatever it is that you would have and whatever it is that you would see fit in our lives this morning. We thank you that your love is extravagant, that your love is strong, that you are constantly pursuing us. Father, I pray that you allow us to see that in a fresh way this morning. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I kind of want to begin this morning, and I want to ask you guys just to imagine for the moment this morning that this week you're going to show up in the office of a dermatologist, all right? And maybe you have an unsightly rash that you're embarrassed about. Uh, Maybe you have the kind of acne that really needs a contour map because it's three-dimensional, all right? Uh, And maybe you guys have one of Freckles' ugly cousins known as the mole, all right? And maybe for whatever reason you need to go see a dermatologist, a a man or a woman that you're going to put your skin in their hands, all right? Uh, a, a, A man or a woman whose expertise and counsel you're going to seek, but I want you to imagine for a moment if you were to walk into that office and if you were to find an individual who seems to have all kinds of expertise and experience with skincare, but with a raging case of acne, unlike anything a teenager has seen, all right? How would you feel? <laughs> maybe a bit awkward, right? <laughs> Unsure of if they can't figure out their own skincare, then maybe they really have no business handling your skincare, right? Maybe you're already thinking about how you get out of there. I want you guys to imagine for a moment that you were going to go see a hair stylist this week, all right? Uh, someone who's going to, you know, you were going to trust your hair into their hands, their experience. And, and when I say hair stylist, I know that most guys, that's immediately cut out because most guys are going to see barbers. A few select of us don't entrust this kind of hair to anyone, all right? So uh, the ladies and myself, we go see a hair stylist this week. Uh, and so imagine though for a moment that you show up and imagine the person who's going to cut your hair clearly has not washed their hair in two weeks. <laughs> Goodness, right? And imagine, too, whatever they've done up here, design-wise, style-wise, is an absolute train wreck, right? How would you feel? <laughs> Again, if they cannot handle their own hair, if they have no seeming experience that can monopolize what's going on up top of their head, then why would you entrust them to handle your own? Imagine showing up maybe this week to a personal trainer, someone who's going to help you maybe lose some weight, kind of get your body to where you want it to be. But imagine showing up, and about halfway through the workout, you begin to realize, you know what? I think they could use this personal trainer thing a little bit more than me, right? They can't seem to figure out their own issues here, and I don't know how exactly they're going to help me, right? 
what I want to do this morning is as we talk about the arts, I'm going to tell you guys, I'm a little bit like that personal trainer, all right, uh, dermatologist and hairstylist, all right? I am the last person that should ever be talking about the arts, but here I am, all right? And I'll say this to you guys, there are multiple kinds of people, all right? There are some who are artistic. Uh, they're musicians, they're painters, right? They kind of have their own kind of style and even clothing line, right? If you tried that out as a non-artist, people would laugh at you, you know, those kinds of people, all right? And then there are those who are kind of artistically challenged, right? That if they had a little bit of training, a little bit of help, they really could kind of get to a place of adequacy, all right? And then there are people like me, people who are artistically conquered that no matter the kind of training, we really have no hope. You shouldn't get us anywhere close to a musical instrument, to a piece of painting. It doesn't really matter. I am as artistically conquered as I get, all right? I actually like that most Sunday mornings, no one sits up here on the front row, all right? Uh, evidently, people think maybe I spit or I'm going to call people out by name. I don't know. But like the front row is just avoided at all costs, all right? You guys can change that next week. But I kind of like it for this reason, though. I can sing to my heart's content and no one can hear my awful voice, all right? I'm not at all worried about who I'm going to offend or who I'm going to distract, all right? In fact, the last time I personally really did anything artistic was in seminary when we had to draw a picture, kind of a summary project of a book of the Bible that we were studying, all right? My picture of a character that I drew was so awful that my poor blessed wife, as loving and as encouraging as she is, she even had to joke that maybe we should put it on the fridge, uh, attach it to the fridge of our kitchen as if it was some elementary school kids project that we loved, all right? It was awful. All right, I am not artistic, which really makes it ironic that I'm the one up here this morning trying to talk about the arts, all right? And yet what I want to do and what we'll do this morning, even as we talk about it, you're going to see that I'm going to quote a lot because we need some other voices into this conversation this morning, all right? But why are we starting with the arts? The last four weeks, we've really been kind of setting the stage, laying a foundation, a four-week foundation for us to begin to finally talk about some specific arenas of culture. Uh, we looked at the garden. We looked at the Tower of Babel the last couple of weeks. We were looking at really what is culture? How has God designed culture? What is the task of culture? What has humanity been called to as it relates to culture? We try to lay kind of some big worldview level kinds of ideas and assumptions out there. And this morning will be the first morning we really kind of come at a specific area of culture and talk to it and talk about it. And specifically this morning we're going to talk about the arts. So why are we starting with the arts? All right? Why, especially if I don't have any experience or expertise, why are we beginning there? Uh, we're going to begin there for a couple of reasons. One is this, that I, I think the church by and large, especially Bible churches, has been more silent on this issue than any other issue we're going to talk about this semester. Every now and then we'll get to issues and we'll talk about sexuality. We'll talk about homosexuality like we will later on this semester. We'll talk about politics and economics. And every now and then we as a church get around to those topics. But in terms of the arts, I cannot think of a topic that the church, especially Bible churches, have been more silent about. And so for those Christians who are really gifted artistically, I think the silence on the topic has really left them without any encouragement or any sense of direction as to how they're to bring these sets of gifts to bear in terms of what God would have for their lives. Also, I, say that, I would say that if the church has said anything about the arts, it's typically incredibly critical and incredibly condemning, as if Hollywood is pictured as the living antichrist, right? And so much of what the church has either not said or has said really has given us no really helpful grid to process how does our faith intersect with the arts. That's what ultimately what I want to do with us this morning as we kind of walk through uh, a series of passages much in the Old Testament actually this morning is really help us wrestle with how does our faith intersect with the arts. Whether you are the creative type who's really artistically gifted or if you're more on the other side of those who enjoy the gifting of others and you're more of a consumer of the arts, whether you are a creator or you are a consumer, every single one of us, I would argue, our lives intersect with the arts on a daily basis. 
whether it's music, whether it's film, whether it's poetry, whether it's painting, whether it's dance, or I would even argue sports, really an artistry of motion, all right? Amen, last Saturday night, right? So, uh, so no matter whatever realm of art we're going to talk about, I'd argue that it intersects with our lives, every single one of us, every day. And so whether you are the creative type or you're more of the consumer type, wherever you would fall, this arena really is something that I think impacts us every single day. And so it's, by, uh, it's, it's time long ago that we should have addressed this and come at that. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. And the first thing I want to kind of highlight for you guys as we jump in is this, that ultimately, what are the arts? If we were to try to define them, uh, we can talk about music, we can talk about film, we can talk about movies, we can talk about painting, we can talk about dance, all right? But if we were to define what they are, how would you define what the arts are? I'm going to give you guys one basic idea or one basic definition this morning that I think that the arts are a commission of creativity. The arts are a commission of creativity. And let me say that more specifically. The arts are a divine commission of human creativity. The arts are a divine commission of human creativity. Let me try to show that to you guys from Exodus 31 this morning. We read the first part of this passage. But I want to highlight it again for you guys, beginning in verse 1 with this mindset in mind, all right? Verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. An individual that God calls out by name. And notice God's intent for this individual's life. Verse 3, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. God is telling Moses that there's an individual in the nation that he is particularly called by name and he's commissioned for task of creativity, all right? In fact, he's going to talk about a second individual in verse 6. And notice the text. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Mr. O. I have no idea how to pronounce his name. The son of Mr. A, all right? I literally thought about finding a different passage this morning because of these guys' names. They're so hard, all right? Of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you. Verse 6 really helps us get a sense of, in Exodus 31, it gets a sense of that there are a series of individuals in the nation of Israel that God calls by name, and he's appointed them for a task to show off the creativity that he's gifted them with. That artistry really is a divine commission of human creativity. In fact, I'm going to quote from a book much this morning, uh, but in it we're going to see that in terms of this commission that Steve Turner in a book entitled Imagine, I'll kind of give you guys some details on that book a little bit later this morning, but he says this again in this idea of human creativity. He says that creativity is part of that inherited image of God that was put in us. Because God is a designer and a maker. Our desire is to create our ability to make concepts tangible and our pleasure in making are all reflections of God's original, let there be, and it was good. We talked about this two weeks ago, that God created all things. He created uh, sun, he created earth, he created water, he created all those things. And in the midst of activities of creation, he had to come behind that with activities of organization. That God was creating and that he was cultivating. And as he was doing those two activities, he then handed those two activities to his creation and specifically to humanity and said, be fruitful and multiply over the whole earth. And as you do that, rule and have dominion over all that I've created you and created and entrusted to you. And so as humanity goes going to do that, they're supposed to represent God. And the fact that we've been created in the image of God, what Steve Turner is trying to say this morning is that the very element of artistry, artistry, <laughs> I can't say that all of a sudden, the, very, the, the arts themselves are an outlet of the very design of God within humanity as we're called to create. The arts are a divine commission of human creativity. They are good. And that as we create and as we see artistry unfold, it is very much the handiwork of God and shows the beauty and the creativity of the ultimate creator and the ultimate artist, God. 
The arts are a wonderful outflowing of that created design and what God intended. In fact, even as we look at Exodus 31, we're going to see that there's an incredible scope to what he's called, all right? Incredible diversity to that creative process. Notice, notice the details in verse 4. He calls this individual to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze. So it's metalwork. Not just metalwork, but even stone and woodwork, verse 5. And in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. In fact, in Exodus 31, uh, God is telling to, to Moses that there's a design that he wants to unfold in terms of the tent of meeting, that Israel is going to have a place of worship. And I want you guys to notice the incredible diversity and intricacy of all that God wants to be created for this tent of meeting. Notice verse 7. He talks about the tent of meeting, and here's the things that he wants to be built and wants to be created. The ark of testimony and the mercy seat upon it and all the furniture of the tent. Verse 8. The table also and all of its utensils and the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils and the altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering also with all of its utensils and the laver and its stand. The woven garments as well and the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons with which to carry on their priesthood. The anointing oil also and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. As Exodus 31 is unfolded, as Moses gets, in a sense, design instructions for the tent of meeting, you get a sense of the absolute diversity and intricacy of this artistic design and work that's being called forward, all right? Incredible detail. In fact, as I was trying to think about this, what would this be like, all right? And so uh, some of you guys know we have a four-year-old girl, and so uh, Marcy's parents for her birthday are going to give her one of these dollhouses, all right? So uh, some of you girls may have grown up with one of these kinds of dollhouses, and I think these things are crazy amazing, all right? Think about not just all of the detail, but think about the tininess of it, right? So you have tiny little beds with tiny little sheets, tiny little comforters, tiny little pillows. You have little tiny tables in the kitchen with tiny cups, tiny forks, tiny plates, right? You have tiny people with tiny clothes. The amount of detail and the amount of effort, the amount of design to go into that is crazy, all right? Some of you guys are like, I don't know anything about dollhouses, all right? So how about for you guys? You guys grew up with those crazy Lego cities, right? All right, the guys are finally like, okay, you got me now. You're with me, all right? You lost me at hairstylist, all right? But here we are. So some of you guys did this kind of thing, right? Amazing detail in this kind of construction, all right? Amazing level of creativity and intricacy, all right? Those two kinds of things either highlight someone who has a hobby who's gone way overboard, right? They're spending way too much time creating and designing, or... There's an element in which we begin to see that God and humanity has great care for and great use for the arts, right? Here's God calling forth the nation at large with a commission of human creativity with a scope that includes all kinds of things, from clothes to stones to metal to wood, with a design with even incense and oils and fragrant offerings. I mean, it is an elaborate design, the likes of which we just saw, right? Legos and dollhouses, all right? So God is either way overboard with a hobby here or God has an incredible use for, design for, appreciation and value for the arts. I think you see that in Exodus 31 that God has an amazing use for and care for the arts. But here is the great big million dollar question that everyone's asking. God will call forth a series of artists in the nation and will task them to create the tent of meeting, all right? So does God's use for and care for the arts only include that which is explicitly religious and spiritual? Does God's use for and care for the arts include only that which is explicitly religious and spiritual? I don't think so. 
We're going to see in Exodus 31 that God will use the arts for the construction of the tent of meeting. But we're going to look at a little bit later this morning, all the way throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see God use all kinds of diverse methods of, uh, of art, so to speak, to communicate messages that are not necessarily always overtly spiritual. And I think by and large, the Christian church has said over and over again, and has really de-emphasized and led to a real separation of what is sacred and what is secular. We've been talking about this the last few weeks, and we're going to continue to talk about it. I think the church and our culture at large has really separated what seems explicitly spiritual from what is not explicitly spiritual. And if it's explicitly spiritual, it's known as that which is sacred. And if it's not explicitly spiritual, it's known as that which is secular. And all of a sudden, when we come to the arts, the church and culture at large begins to do the same kind of thing. There is Christian art, and there is art that is not Christian, right? And so if you're a Christian, you know Jesus Christ, and you're gifted in the arts, then you can either have one of two options, right? You can either deploy your gifts in that which is godly and sacred, right? Or you can sell out for the secular, and it can't honor God. What an amazing and pitiful and sad divide, right? Why is it so sad? Uh, I'll show you guys a quote. Uh, Steve Turner says that in this way, Christian art is not distinguished by a regenerated outlook on the whole of life, but by a narrow focus on Bible stories, saints, martyrs, and the individual's relationship with God. Christian art in this sense is, uh, is usually an aid to worship or a means of evangelism, which are all wonderful, right? Incredibly gifted musicians up here leading us this morning in worship, right? Music can be also a means of evangelism, but Is that the only opportunity it has to honor God? No, no. Christians who are in the art or art in general can honor God, whether it's explicitly spiritual and religious or not. All right. And we've got to get away from that kind of divide because Christians who are in the arts go, I have very little options here. It's fascinating. Even Christian music is the only subcategory of music that is denoted expressly, not by style of music, but by lyrics. And unless Christian music has a certain number of references to God or theological buzzwords, it can't even qualify as Christian, right? There's an incredible divide between what is sacred and what is secular in Christian music and, frankly, in the arts at large. And so for the Christians who are gifted in these ways, they're wondering, what are their options? One of the things I want to say from the very outset is that kind of divide is really, really sad. And really misses the point of what God intended, all right? Let me kind of highlight this for you guys in a different way. Because I think uh, that as we think about this, it's not just our culture at large is doing this, but I think our churches and, and frankly, Protestants specifically have kind of pushed this. Think about our own worship service this morning. Uh, we have incredibly gifted musicians who come with music, right? And then, uh, then we'll kind of speak at you for a little while, right? But in terms of our worship experience, I want you guys to think about how different this worship experience is than from a Catholic mass, all right? Uh, Steve Turner talks about the worship experience offered to Catholics is theatrical and sensual. <laughs> what does he mean by sensual, right? What's he talking about, all right? He's, gonna, he's talking about something that appeals to the senses, all right? The sight of processionals, colored robes, miters, flickering candles, stained glass, sacred art, the sound of chanting and singing, the smell of incense, the taste of bread and wine, the touch of the priest's hands. I grew up in a Baptist church, but I went to high school in a private Catholic high school, all right? And I went to mass once a month. Incredible difference in terms of worship experiences. Catholics, in terms of the mass and that worship experience, they employ the arts and they appeal to the senses in a way that most Protestants and especially Bible churches don't, all right? In fact, so stark and so significant is what the Catholic Mass is that even director Martin Scorsese would say, looking back in his past, he would have a a moment in the 60s where he was debating about becoming a Catholic priest and going to seminary. And eventually he would feel like the Lord led him not towards seminary in the Catholic Church, right? But actually toward 
film school. And he'll say this about the Catholic mass. He says, it was so impressive with different colored vestments for the different masses, white and gold or green and gold. I guess I made the association between going to the cathedral and to the movie theater at an early age. Of course, he would also say that the Catholic Mass was the same movie every single time he saw it, all right? But nonetheless, what Scorsese is saying is that for him, at the very early outset of his childhood, that it was the church that really sparked the arts for him. That apart from the Mass experience, he really would never have seen the power and the beauty and the creativity of the arts as God had designed them and invited him into experience. And so it would be from that experience that he would run off to film school to see really of how the creativity could be unleashed in different kinds of ways. Say what you will about Martin Scorsese and where he would go later on. But in terms of an early phase, an early moment, he really recognized that the church really was the birthplace of the arts for him. And yet I'd argue that we've come so far from that. And the church, especially the Protestant church, and especially I'd say Bible churches like ours, often so de-emphasize the arts. We've often helped accelerate this kind of uh, segregation and separation between what is explicitly sacred and what is explicitly maybe secular, right? In fact, I'm going to give you guys one last quote because why is this significant? Why does it matter? Why is this kind of separation so significant, so harmful? Uh, I'm going to give you guys a quote that I think hits it dead on. Uh, Steve, uh, uh, again, says uh, that the problem that has affected the church down throughout the ages with regard to art can be put very simply. How much of life is Christ to be Lord over? Is he only interested in that part of life we think of as religious or spiritual? Or is he interested in every facet of our lives? Body, soul, mind, and spirit. The sort of art we make as Christians will illustrate our answer, right? When we as Christians make art, music, whatever, painting, whatever, that is always explicitly spiritual, what we're saying to a world that's listening and watching is God only cares for your soul. He only cares for that part of your life that seems explicitly spiritual. But in terms of school, career, sex, whatever else, God doesn't seem to really care. Frankly, it's irrelevant. You just need to read your Bible more. And that's a real miss of what God has created, the beauty, the creativity, and the opportunity of the arts. One of the things I want to do as we begin this morning is I want to challenge you and encourage you to value the arts in all of their diversity. To value the arts in all of their diversity. They are incredibly powerful to communicate, to inspire, and to move. And it's time that we stop de-emphasizing them, but realize what a unique place they have in our lives, in our worship, in our study, in our work, in every arena of our lives. The arts are amazingly powerful to display the creativity of God. The arts are a divine commission of human creativity, all right? If that's what they are, though, then what do we do with them? What are they meant to do? What do the arts do, all right? I'd argue, guys, that the arts are a platform for prophecy. They're going to communicate something to us, all right? Um, I was thinking even uh, in terms of creativity in the arts. I think every single one of us, whether you think you're artistic or not, is creative and produces something, all right? I was thinking back in college, there were a set of friends that I had that uh, they thought on a date party near Halloween, it would be a great idea to create a look that they would go out to this date party with, all right? And what they thought would be a fantastic idea is to go as Spice Boys Gone Country, all right? Which was just a train wreck waiting to happen, all right? So they got jean cutoffs, all right? They got Western shirts. They put boots on. They did bandanas. And they put a glittered SB on their pant leg, all right? And then on the back, put Spice Boys Gone Country on the back of their shirts, all right? It was a creation of some sort, right? What was it communicating? Not the best of things, right? Uh, I even knew some college girls in, uh, some girls in college who, in their own kitchen, uh, they had Bible verses 
verses kind of splattered all the way throughout their kitchen on their cabinets, all right? There was more verse, verses displayed than there was cabinet displayed, all right? Uh, it was as if, and not at all being mocking, but it was as if someone took the word of God, put it in a bowl, and took a beater to it, and it just went everywhere, all right? Uh, again, it was a kind of creation, right? We're creating all the time, right? Uh, in every arena of our life. And the question is, what does that creation do? What is it communicating? What is its purpose, all right? I'm going to argue to you guys that, uh, that cr- the arts are simply a divine commission of human creativity, but what do they do? What's their purpose? They're going to be a platform for prophecy. That at every turn, they're going to communicate something. And the reality is, as we looked at this last week, if the arts were good originally, sin comes in the world, Genesis 3. We saw the Tower of Babel last week in Genesis 11. And so everything that was originally good, it gets, dis- gets tainted and distorted by sin. And the arts are no different, all right? The arts are going to be distorted and tainted by sin as well because what ends up happening is what was meant to be a platform for prophecy becomes something intended for idolatry. The arts often can become a place where we were intended to worship and revere God, but they can become a place of absolute idolatry. In fact, it's said that the modern temptation is to make art with the intention that it becomes idolized. Uh, And so I would argue to you guys that today in our day and age, it's not just that the art, the product becomes idealized, but even the artists themselves become idealized, right? Uh, We're amazed by what someone can do on a football field. So we idolize the player, right? We're amazed by what someone can paint. And so we idolize the painter. We're amazed by what someone can produce lyrically and in music. And so are we that cut up by the music or by the artists themselves? We become so caught up by the artists themselves, right? And no longer are we even that interested by what they're doing sometimes on a stage or on a field, but our interest becomes absolutely absorbed to them off the field, right? We become so enamored to know everything that they're doing, everything that they're wearing, everything that they're thinking in every arena and every moment of their life, right? And so even for our, us in our own back, backwoods here is Johnny Football uh, on the cover of Texas Monthly posing as Superman, right? Uh, and then also on the cover of Time, Time, nationally acclaimed Time and our own little Johnny Football, right? Why? Because we are, not, we are a culture that is enamored not just by what people do on a field or on a stage, but we are enamored by who they are even off the field and ultimately what they can communicate. All right, what is the message they can pass forward? So even for time, notice, I don't know if you guys can see this, but next to his picture is the message, it's time to pay college athletes. Notice that with artistry always comes a move sometimes toward idolatry, but there's always a message that's linked to that person, or that artist in whatever shape and form, right? So here's time hijacking his image, trying to push a message forward, but you know what, it's time to pay athletes, right? And so here's the deal. If it's not for idolatry, then uh, what does God do, right? I, I think God knew this human instinct toward idolatry from the very beginning, which is why the first and second commands of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are all about this issue. Uh, I'm going to familiarize, familiarize you guys with this. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 5, God says, you shall, not have, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. We talked uh, from the very beginning of our series that what is culture? Culture is what human beings make of the world. Make having kind of two ideas, one being material. It's what we literally produce and craft and make, right? But also what we make of the world in terms of meaning and significance. And so God comes to the nation of Israel and to you and I and says, whatever you do, do not make idols. And then therefore after that, uh, you shall not worship them or serve them, right? I, I think God knew in the creative capacities of mankind an innate tendency to idolize the maker of the creativity, right? What was the creativity supposed to be displaying? It was supposed to be displaying the creativity, the radiance, the beauty of God himself. But so quickly we get so enamored by what happens on a field, what happens on a stage, what happens in a sound booth. 
that we become so idolized and so caught up and obsessed, not just with the artist, uh, not just with the art, but with the artists themselves. I'd go even further than that. I'd say that in our society, we've gone even beyond the actor on the stage and beyond the athlete on the field, that now we are absolutely obsessed even with coaches themselves, right? Now, we may not know who, who's even playing on the field, but if a certain coach is there, we're going to tune in. I'd even argue the same is true with TV shows and movies today. Some of us tune in because we know a certain director's name is on the movie. It's Christopher Nolan. Whatever he's going to do, I want to watch, right? Or J.J. Abrams is going to produce something. Whatever he's going to produce, I don't know the actors. I don't even know the story, but I'm going to tune in because it's J.J. Abrams, right? We've even gone beyond just the actors on the stage and beyond just the product itself on the TV or on the stage, right? To producers, to directors, and even to coaches. We are enamored with the arts. Enamored. And we become idolizing and we become idolatrous even of the artists themselves. We get so caught up, so curious about every arena of their lives. And God recognized that. That the arts were not meant to be a platform for idolatry. They were meant to be something else. They were meant to be a a place for prophecy. A place for prophecy. Why and how? What does God do here? What I want to show you guys as we kind of walk through some Old Testament passages, I want to show you guys not just that God cares for the arts and that he uses the arts, but I want you guys to see how diverse the methods are of what he does, even in the Old Testament, with the arts. God will use the arts over and over again in some ways that will actually even surprise you. One of my favorite passages comes in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5. It reads, you will meet a group of prophets with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will prophesy. Man, interesting, First Samuel chapter 10, that the musicians of the Old Testament were those also who were connected with prophecy. Who were the prophets of the Old Testament? They were sometimes and often musicians themselves. The reality is that music is incredibly powerful to communicate. Incredibly powerful to communicate. I tell you guys, even in a church setting, that most of your theology is not what's been brought to you by a preacher. Most of your theology actually hangs on the songs you sing. The most powerful theologian in a church setting is not the preacher, it is the musician. It is the worship leader because music is that incredibly powerful. Can you recite anything I'll say after this morning? Probably not. Can you recite some of the songs we sang this morning, some of the songs we'll sing throughout the rest of the semester? Absolutely. Music is incredibly powerful to capture our hearts, to inspire us, to move us, and what we remember is often what we sing because music can capture and communicate in a way that sometimes plain spoken word can't. Music is powerful. It's powerful for the nation of Israel as well. And it's powerful in our day. Uh, One of my favorite quotes, uh, a guy says that in the 1960s, musicians were no longer entertainers, but they became prophets and they were shamans. 1960s Woodstock, uh, uh, World War going on, Vietnam, and all of a sudden the musicians were not just playing songs, they were writing songs about a war that was ensuing and what the nation, or what America should do, right? All of a sudden, Bono and other musicians in the last few decades have moved beyond just the musical arena, but they are speaking toward issues at large. See, music can move the horizons of a culture, making what is now not possible possible, and what was once possible impossible. Music is in the culture-making business in a way that few other arenas of culture are. Music is incredibly powerful here in a church setting or outside of our walls in the cultural arena at large. Music is incredibly powerful. Timothy Leary will say this, that rock and roll musicians became the philosopher poets of the new religion in that day. Who is it that's setting forth new cultural ideas, new cultural values, new theology, so to speak? It's musicians today. Which really means for you and I, a whole new generation is coming behind you guys who is absolutely attached to two individuals that God help us, right? <laughs> Justin Bieber has 44 million followers on Twitter. 44 million. Hello, right? 
And if I get one more news headline about Miley Cyrus, I'm going to go insane, right? Uh, I have fatigue, and yet why does the media continue to put these individuals forward? Because there's an innate, uh, unreachable, unfulfillable capacity to consume more of their news and their product, right? We think they're crazy at times, but the rest of the world is absolutely enamored and is listening. And the reality is they're setting forward a new religion, so to speak, coming in the future. And we're going to see the fruits of it in about five to ten years here in Texas A&M, right? It's the reality. Musicians are not just pop entertainers. They are setting forward new theologies, new ideologies, new religions. They're communicating in a way that few others can communicate, and they're moving the horizons of our culture forward in a way that few other movers and shakers are. Which is why the fact that the Christians who are gifted musically have pulled out of the mainstream contemporary musical scene is such a tragedy, right? As we've hold ourselves away in one little subculture, our impact is going to be so minimal, all right? So it's not just music. God will employ also, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 4, we'll get a really interesting story where God will call the prophet Ezekiel to build a model of Jerusalem, all right? 3D model of Jerusalem, all right? So he gets at the walls, he gets the town, he, he builds it. And then God instructs him, uh, we don't have time to look at this passage, I'm kind of just kind of speak towards it. God will instruct him to lay waste to the city to, to, as if he were an attacking army. And so here's little Ezekiel who's built a city and is now pre- kind of pretending a fake battle against the city, all right? And in the aftermath of that battle, then God instructs Ezekiel to lay on his side for a year, all right? And then after that year, to lay on his other side for another portion of another year. Meanwhile, throughout that year and a half, he's got cords that are binding him down, and God is speaking a message to the nation of Israel through that kind of living statue, all right? Imagine if you're the prophet. God, you want me to lay on my side for a year? Do you know the kind of atrophy that's going to set in, right? How's this going to go, right? This seems crazy. People are going to walk by and just kind of mock me, laugh at me, uh, you know, put food right without, uh, without my reach, you know, like how's that going to go, right? But there's Ezekiel, a living statue communicating a message to the nation of Israel. If you think this story in Ezekiel 4 with Ezekiel is crazy, with Jeremiah in chapter 13 is even crazier, all right? God will tell Jeremiah to take his underwear, all right? Take it off, all right? Go put it in the crevice of a mountain, all right? And then in a year later, come back and get it, all right? By this time, it's crusty, it's moldy, it's nasty, it reeks, right? Then he tells Jeremiah, I want you to parade around in it, wear it, all right? And then the nation is like, what in the world? You are odious in our sight. And God says to the nation, exactly. <laughs> That's how I feel about your sin and our relationship right now. God calls Jeremiah to, in a sense, have a 3D kind of painting, if you will, for the nation of Israel to understand what God is wanting to communicate to them. God uses the arts over and over again. And then there's the story, you could even call it a movie, you could call it a play of Hosea, right? God tells a man named Homer to go and marry an adulterous woman named Hosea, who God tells him ahead of time, she's going to cheat on you. She sure enough goes off, cheats. God tells him, I want you to go back and I want you to take her back. He takes her back. She goes and cheats again. God says, I want you to go back and take her back, right? It's a movie or a play that unfolds from the nation of Israel. And God then says, through that movie and play to the nation of Israel, so is our relationship. (laughs) You are like an adulterous woman who over and over again leaves me. But I'm like an incredibly gracious husband who over and over again loves you and invites you back. Beyond reason, beyond expectation. God uses the arts in incredibly diverse ways to communicate in a way that sometimes the spoken word does not. The arts communicate and they, they, uh, in a sense they pierce our hearts and our understanding in a way that just the spoken word sometimes doesn't. The arts are incredibly powerful. And then even Jesus Christ himself, the best movie or play that could be imaginable, Hebrews chapter 1, we find that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. 
And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Here is the best movie imaginable. God comes, he takes on human flesh, and he walks amongst us. Talk about the performing arts. There you go. And Jesus comes and he provides us the most significant message that could ever be communicated. But God didn't just drop off a letter, right? He didn't just shoot off an email. He sent his only son who lived it out and walked amongst us to show us that we had a desperate need for a savior. That apart from what Jesus would do on, the, on behalf of us on a cross, that we would spend forever and all of eternity apart from him. And yet Jesus, taking on human flesh, dying on a cross, stands in our place, taking the sin that should have been ours and the punishment that was ours. And God extends to us grace. But he didn't just email, he didn't just send a letter. He provided the most amazing, elaborate display of the performing arts that one could ever imagine. God becoming flesh, coming in a manger, living amongst us and dying on our behalf, a horrific death. To say, hey, this is how much I love you. This is how much I'm willing to go to communicate to you your worth to me, your value to me, and how much I'm desperate to have a relationship with you. And he uses the performing arts, if you will, to do it. Because they're incredibly useful, they're incredibly valuable, and God's incredibly creative in his ability to employ them. Amazing. That God would go to that extent to do that on our behalf. And so, here's the deal. Here's what's challenging, is that I think as you look at the arts, uh, that ultimately... I think the arts, for every single artist, there is an instinct for an artist to ask questions about origins, identity, behavior, and destiny. What the arts do is they prompt questions and they provide answers. The arts and every artist has an instinct ability to ask the big questions and not just leave them hanging. But the art themselves that they produce provides an answer to those questions. And art is a medium that doesn't just ask questions and communicates, but is a medium that is so powerful that it can change the hearer, it can change the receiver in a way that the spoken word just can't sometimes. The performing arts are amazingly powerful to not just communicate, but to transform. I think one of the things I want to highlight for you guys this morning is not just that we need to revalue the arts, but we also need to realize and be awakened to just how impactful they are in our lives. They're incredibly powerful to communicate and incredibly powerful to transform. And if that's so, if the arts are a divine commission of human creativity that can communicate and transform us, then how in the world do you and I engage them? Whether we are creative or whether we are a consumer, how do we engage them? What I want to do is I want to kind of end this morning with some practical principles for how you and I are to engage with the arts, all right? How do we actually do this practically, and how do we do it in a Christian way, right? Uh, this might be where you expect the pastor or the church to kind of go real critical and go real negative on the arts, all right? Which hopefully you've gathered I'm not going to do, right? So the first thing I want to highlight for you guys, and I want to say again to you guys, is enjoy the creativity of man in art. Enjoy the creativity of man in art. Create, creativeness and the arts are a great display of the beauty and the creativity of God. They're an amazing outworking of what God has created and how he's gifted individuals. It's not meant to be for idolatry because God is the one who's gifted. He's gifted the righteous and the unrighteous. And so we can enjoy that amazing artistry that's put on display because God is the giver. He's the designer. Whether the person knows Jesus Christ or not, whether the art is explicitly secular or sacred and religious or whether it's not. God is the creator. He is the designer. He is the gifter of all of those artists. And so we can enjoy it in what God has done. In fact, what I want to do is I want to give you guys a few ideas, a few thoughts. First is, again, I kind of alluded to this, but I think sports really is a artistry of motion. All right. I really do think as you watch sports, you see incredibly gifted athletes and individuals doing things with a human body that is astonishing. Right. 
And of course, we can make that into idolatry. We can advertise that and put all kinds of immorality attached to it. But even at the hilt at the greatest moment of sports, is this moment of human suspense, a moment really of what God has created, the beauty of motion, the beauty of the body, and we can enjoy it, all right? You don't have to just throw out the baby with a bathwater just because things can go awry. Same thing with movies. I think movies are asking and prompting some of the biggest questions that people are asking and they're talking about. Movies provide you a window to, to the soul of our culture. What are the issues that are being raised? What are the questions that are being asked? And how are people beginning to answer those questions? Movies provide you a, a window into the soul, the heart, and the mind of our society at large. So, as you engage with movies, engage it with a mindset wondering, hey, where is people? Where are people? What are they asking? What are they thinking? I want, I want to give you guys a few books, a few resources that I think are phenomenal along these lines if you're interested, right? Some of you guys may go, hey, I'm really digging what we're talking about. It's very different for a Sunday morning, but I'd love to read more, right? I'm going to give you guys a few resources that were helpful for me that I think would be great for you guys. One is a book called Into the Dark, all right? A guy named Craig Detweiler, and he writes uh, with a lens of, uh, in a sense, uh, seeing the sacred in the top films of the 21st century. He looks at the top rated, the top viewed, the top grossed movies of the last 21st century. And he says, what is our society asking? And what are the answers they're providing? And it's interesting by how dark those movies are, the most popular ones, how flawed humanity is, right? And how desperately in need of redemption humanity is in the darkest and the most popular of movies. Of course, we might offer a different solution than what some of those movies might offer, but a really interesting take. Another book called Real Spirituality by a guy named Robert Johnson who looks at theology and film in dialogue, right? Uh, again, if artists are asking all of those pivotal questions, questions that we think faith has an answer to as well, then how do we engage movie with our, with our world at large, with our unbelieving friends? How do we engage movies and realize what are the questions that they're asking and how are they answering those questions? And then how do we enter into that dialogue and become conversant with the movies and with the culture at large that's sitting at that really commonplace? Every culture, every society has places that they gather around a table to discuss, in Old, Testament, in Old Testament Israel, it was the gate, all right? People would travel through the gate. They'd be going out to the gate to get food. They'd come back. They'd be at the gate to do all political and civil business. The gate was where people were talking, all right? I would argue to you guys in many ways today that the movie theater is where many are talking today. The movie theater is really where much of the discourse and the conversation of our culture at large is. And I think sometimes as we engage movies, as we get a sense of our presence in the cinema or in TV, we get a sense of where our culture is, the questions that they're asking, and how they're answering them, all right? And so uh, the other book that I've quoted from a ton this morning that I think really, if you had one book you could read, if one book that you wanted to enter into this, it's a book called Imagine uh, by a guy named Steve Turner. And the subtitle is, uh, you probably can't see it, but A Vision for Christians in the Arts. Man. Uh, I took about 30 pages of quotes from this book. Fantastic book, right? If you're kind of wrestling with, hey, whether you are the creative type or you're a consumer type, as you enter into the arts, movie, film, music, dance, uh, painting, sports, how do you enter into that in a Christian way, all right? Three great books that I highly encourage you guys if you had extra time uh, this fall. Uh, but what I want to do kind of coming from here is I want to kind of highlight for you guys the reality that uh, for us, I, I think we ought to engage uh, the arts and enjoy them, all right? But I want to challenge you guys to enjoy them with a creative filter that's active, all right? Uh, enjoy them, but enjoy them with a critical filter that's at work. And, and here's why. I think for many of us, the arts, sports, TV, film, music, uh, entertainment of, of a variety of kinds is often where we go to unplug, right? It's where we go to relax. It's where we go to be refreshed, which I think is Biblical. You should find places and activities that refresh you, that are restful for you, all right? But the challenge sometimes with the arts in this medium is 
where we go to be refreshed, where we go to unplug is not a neutral medium, right? If the arts are particularly suited to ask questions, provide answers, and move us to action, then we're going to an arena and shutting our minds off and not actually thinking about what we are participating and experiencing, right? And so what I want to challenge you guys to is as you enjoy them, enjoy them with a critical filter in mind. I'm going to give you guys a few questions, but I want to give you guys one quote by a guy named T.S. Eliot, and he says this about literature, but I think you can extend this to the arts as a whole. It is just the literature that we read for amusement, which I don't know if you realize this, but the word amusement literally means without thought, right? If I'm going to amuse myself, I just want to go to do something that I do not have to think anymore. Uh, so the literature that we read for amusement or not having to, having to think for change or purely for pleasure that may have the greatest and least suspected influence upon us. And yet it is the literature that we read with the least effort that can have the easiest and the most insidious influence upon us. The arts are a place that we can go to be refreshed sometimes where we want to unplug our minds because we've been sitting for hours on end all week, right? But what I want to say to you guys is be very careful. Literature, music, film, TV, all right? That entire medium is incredibly powerful to prompt questions, to answer questions, and to move our lives, not just what we believe, but how we live. Remember, musicians today are the philosopher poets of a whole new religion, right? So one of the things I want to challenge you guys to is not to have this view of, oh, I got to avoid it at all costs, right? But as you engage it, as you enjoy it, enjoy it with a critical filter in mind. And I want to give you guys a series of questions to post to challenge you guys. Maybe this afternoon, take these questions and really spend some time praying and, pro- and kind of processing, hey, uh, what is your life like with the arts? And, and where would you fall in some of this? All right. Uh, f- first question I want to kind of throw you guys is this. Uh, do the arts expose immorality? Do the arts expose immorality? And my answer here and how I'm going to walk you guys through this may be surprising, all right? If the arts, a movie, a book, exposes immorality, should you necessarily then avoid it at all costs? I think you would probably think the pastor in the church is going to say yes, right? But I'm going to say no. Here's the deal. I think many apply a filter to the arts that no one would even try applying to the Bible, right? Literature is a, the Bible is a piece of literature, it is a piece of artistic work in a sense of a divine author, yes, right? A divine unfallen author, Right? But it is still a divine author who's unfolded a piece of literature for you and I that does it expose immorality? Heck yes, right? We have David committing adultery. We have David committing murder, right? Uh, We have um, uh, incest. We have rape in the Old Testament. We have every single imaginable sin mentioned, sometimes even demonstrated in the narrative at times, (laughs) as to what's happening. So does the Bible expose immorality? Heck yes. So why do we get so uncomfortable when the arts mention or maybe highlight immorality, right? Uh, There is a difference, and I'll ask this in a minute, there's a difference between exposing and showing immorality and celebrating immorality, all right? Um, And so uh, how many TV shows are are there out there right now that begin with a murder and then need crime-solving abilities to come fix it, right? Uh, And so even for Marcy and I, even for us, as we have a little four-year-old girl who's wanting to watch Finding Nemo, right? Uh, The opening scene is little girl or little little, little Nemo getting separated from dad, right? Horrific moment for Caroline, right? So even for us, we're kind of at this early stage going, hey, let's fast forward through that. Let's just get it where Nemo's kind of on a fun little adventure, right? But the reality is at some point, Caroline's going to realize, even by the arts, that there's trauma in our world, right? There's evil in our world. There is sin in our world. Man is broken. Man is not perfect. And for the arts to expose that, that's not necessarily bad. It doesn't mean that you necessarily need to avoid it. Um, uh, John Henry Cardell Newman says this, that it is a contradiction in terms to attempt a sinless literature of sinful man. 
You cannot have literature that is sinless when it's trying to document and talk about a sinful humanity, right? How do you do that? The Bible didn't even do that, all right? And so just the fact that the arts may expose or speak of or mention immorality does not mean that you avoid it at all costs. I think a lot of us live off of Philippians 4.8 and live off of that only, right? Uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is of peace, whatever is of love, think on those things, and that is true. That's where our minds should go. We should celebrate and we should value righteousness, justice, peace, and goodness. But it does not mean, the Bible doesn't even do this, right? That we can never see or think of or know that sin exists, right? Um, in fact, I think a lot of Christian fiction provides a view of the world that is frankly unrealistic and inaccurate, right? Um, I'll give you guys a long quote here. It's two pages, but I think it's really fascinating. I think a lot of you guys may identify with this. Some of you guys love Christian fiction, all right? I'm about to take. Uh, I'm about to step on your toes a little bit, but uh, give me a little grace here. All right. So, if the obstacles the writer introduces, specifically in Christian fiction, either don't seem challenging enough, for example, the protagonist has handed back too much change in a store and worries about whether to return it. Oh dear gosh, the world's going to come apart, right? Do I return the change or not? How little of an issue? How little of a conflict is that? Or they don't seem real enough. For example, a fight ensues, but no punches are seen to land and no blood is spilled. I'm not trying to push for incredible brutality on film, all right? That's not what I'm doing. But here's the issue. Then evil doesn't appear evil enough. And if good triumphs, it won't appear good enough. That is why so much Christian fiction lacks the ring of truth. The action doesn't appear to take place in the real world. I'll tell you guys, most will separate the arts into explicitly sacred and secular. And what ends up happening is Christians hold away and do their own Christian kind of literature, their own Christian kind of music. And the reality is sometimes the standards and the quality of it are poor. In terms of a piece of literature, sometimes what literature is meant to do, it doesn't even hit those standards very well. Some of you guys may love Christian fiction. I'm not trying to take it away from you. What I'm trying to say though, is as we think of the arts at large, to a society that's embracing them, engaging them and wrestling with the realities of their world, when fiction and literature doesn't really prompt the real questions that are out there, the real issues, the real tragedies, the real baggage that people have, they're really not able to provide the real solution that they need. All right? And so now there's a huge difference, though, and this is where I want to kind of move it to. Uh, so it, easy, it would be easy to say then, okay, so expose immorality, but where's the line? Where do you stop? So the second question I want to ask then is, does it celebrate immorality? Huge difference between what exposes immorality and what celebrates immorality. And you guys know the TV shows and the movies that I'm talking about. There's a fine line between uh, the reality that there's immorality and there's struggle and there's sin in the world and movies and TV shows that celebrate it, right? That are gratuitous of it, uh, that seem to have no redemptive element from it, right? It is just simply a celebration of sin, (laughs) And I think it's not without respect to say that kind of performing arts, that kind of uh, engagement with the arts is not what we need to be a part of, right? There ought to be a distinction in how we engage the arts with how the rest of society engages the arts. There are a ton of TV shows that, frankly, the protagonists, you are rooting for a protagonist who has to engage in immorality just to get the, the plot to move forward, right? A protagonist who has to kill to prevent crime from going forward, right? are TV shows, stories, literature, movies that are engaging and celebrating and rooting for further immorality really that beneficial to us? I want to ask you guys, I want to highlight for you guys, uh, I'm not going to, a lot of these shows I've never even personally seen, all right? But I want to highlight for you guys the top five TV TV shows rated on Amazon, all right? 
These are the top five of 2013. And here's my question for you guys. Uh, kind of my last question. Uh, do others dictate your choices? Are you watching things just because everybody else is watching it? I think there was a time that the church had basically said Hollywood is the Antichrist, so avoid it at all costs. But now I think we flip to a stage where we just kind of watch what everybody else is watching, all right? And so here's the top five TV shows of our, uh, of our year, according to Amazon, for our society at large. Number one, Breaking Bad. Number two, Downton Abbey. Number three, The Bible, which I thought was kind of interesting. Number four, Dexter. Number five, Game of Thrones. I want to ask you guys, as you look at those toply gross TV shows, are they exposing immorality or are they celebrating immorality? Uh, you guys may know too this week that many of you guys may have lost your whole weekend and you may lose the upcoming week due to the fact that uh, Grand Theft Auto just released their fifth version, right? Which in 24 hours grossed $800 million, all right? The NFL industry grosses $9 billion over a year. Grand Theft Auto grossed a 10% of that in one day this year, right? All right, here's my question. Those TV shows, that game, whether you engage them or not, what is it saying about our society and where we are, all right? And here's my challenge to you guys, all right? Here's what I'm going to ask you guys individually towards this afternoon and tonight. I want to challenge you guys, come next week, all the TV shows begin at their premieres, all right? Some of you guys are locked in, dialed up, and excited, all right? I am too, all right? I like to watch TV. All right, I did. I said it, okay? Don't, don't get freaked out weird on me, all right? But here's what I want to challenge you guys to do is I want to challenge you to take your, your film, your music, your TV, any engagement you have with the arts, and I want to challenge you to put it before the Lord this afternoon and this week and say, Lord, hey, what is it you have for me? Because here's the reality. What your conscience and where the Lord may lead you with a show, a, a song, a, a group, a band, whatever, it may be different than your neighbor. It may be different than your roommate. It may be different than somebody in your Bible study. And as we look at the arts, as we look at our engagement with the arts, I think this is one area that our conscience comes into play. I'm not going to tell you that these top five TV shows you shouldn't be watching. I don't know. I've not seen some of them. And for some of y'all, it may not mess with your conscience in the way that other shows will. So guys, there was one crime show that I watched for a while, but afterwards I began to realize, man, there's just a darkness to it that's messing with me. It's psychological. It's incredibly serial killer based. And I just, I, I was dreaming about it and having hard times with it. And I realized after a while, I, mean, I don't need to be watching this show. It's not helpful to me. <laughs> Frankly, it's messing with me, right? And I want to say, hey, come before the Lord and really wrestle with, hey, what does he have for you? What kind of freedom do you have in what you engage and what you watch and what you listen to? And realize it may be different for you than it is for your roommate. And so as you enter in this arena, be sensitive that there may be people who are going to have different challenges, different convictions on certain things. And in light of that, let me say this to you guys as well. It may be time that you guys begin to diminish your activity on social media about certain shows. The moment you post something, the moment you highlight something, you are endorsing it. And there may be someone with a conscience that's in a different place. And so I'm not trying to get you guys to be legalistic about what's a good show to watch and what's not. All right. I do want to say to you guys, you guys need to wrestle with that before the Lord and not just assume that it's an automatic thing that you have the freedom to engage, but to engage it with a criticalness that's spirit-led. And lastly, if there's different convictions, then you guys need to be sensitive to how you advertise what you watch. I had a seminary professor who advertised for a show days later, right around the Super Bowl. That show would be shown right after the Super Bowl with as many people as possible, and the main character would be prancing around in red lingerie on an airplane, all right? I guarantee you, if he knew that, he probably would not have advertised for that show and had a whole seminary watching it, right? All right? So be careful with what you advertise because you do not know where the show will turn or what twists it will take and what it's going to begin to advertise and promote. So be sensitive and be careful with how you align yourself, how you promote certain shows. And I would argue to you, they probably don't need any more promotion from you. (laughs) 
that it might be safer, it might be wiser to really be discerning and diligent to maybe pull back from that kind of thing. All right, lastly, we're going a little bit late. Lastly, I'm going to say, I'd love to challenge you guys not just to think about restricting, but to think about developing your gifts, all right? Music, film, dance, whatever, all right? Uh, I want to challenge you guys to enjoy it and then think about how you can help develop those skill sets, all right? So if you are a musician, let me just say, one of our heartbeats is to help you develop in that skill set here. Not that this is the only place you can use that skill set, but we want to help you guys develop in that skill set, not just here, but even as you step onto the campus and into the world at large. And so if you would love to serve with us, musically speaking, again, it's not that this is the only place that you can serve and employ that gift. But as we raise up next generation leaders, we're wanting to raise up not just evangelists, but also Bible study teachers, but also musicians, right? Whether they're going to serve and do uh, you know, explicitly Christian lyrics or whether they're going to step into a different arena musically speaking and perform in different places, we want to help you hone that gift. And so if you're musically inclined, if you want to be challenged in that arena, if you want to have an opportunity to serve, you can come talk to Sarah DeGroat at our lunch here in a few minutes, or you can also email Wes Taylor at grace-bible.org and can set up an audition. We'd love to have you guys have a place here in our church to serve, and we'd love to come alongside you guys and help you develop in that gift set. Also, if you are technically uh, inclined toward helping with sound ministry. I'll tell you guys, there are a lot of moving pieces toward a morning. One of those is sound. And so uh, we have amazing volunteers that have been with us for years and seeing these guys grow and seeing them develop. If you'd be interested, you can email BJ McGeever at gracebible.org or you can simply talk to these guys in the back. They would love to talk with you. They'd love to interact with you. And so we'd love for you guys to think about, hey, if you're gifted in that way, help us let you develop in that. You may eventually get a job in that arena and we would love to be a part of that developmental process with you. Not that this is the only place that you can use that gift. Lastly, I'd say even with IT and web, more and more is moving in that direction. And so even if you're interested in doing app design, if you're interested in web design, if you're interested in any kind of IT kind of stuff, we have a lot of that going on. would love to involve you in it. would love to help develop you in it. If you're interested in that, come talk to me, all right? All right, we are over and we've gone pretty late, but let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll wrap it up. Father God, I thank you for the amazing diversity and creativity that you've put within man, the righteous and the unrighteous. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as, you, uh, as we engage in this arena, whether we are creative or whether we're more of a consumer in it, Father, I pray that you give us wisdom. I pray that you give us a real sense of freedom and ability and a willingness to engage and not feel guilty in it, but to be able to do it in wisdom and in spirituality as you would guide us and as you would lead us. Father, I pray for some of us here that are gifted in these arenas. Lord, I pray that you to help us to find places to utilize those gifts, to serve with those gifts, but also to develop in them so that you would allow us to use those in other arenas as we would step out and even as we would eventually graduate. Father, I thank you for the amazing intricacy and diversity in the gifts that you've unfolded, specifically within the arts, and for their amazing ability to communicate, to inspire, and to transform. And Father, I pray that we as a church could become more creative in our use of those gifts, not just in our worship services, but even just in the way that we engage our community at large. Father, might you inspire dreams, might you inspire visions, might you inspire a sense of the ways that we can move towards our community with those kinds of gifts in the performing arts to ask the biggest questions that are being asked and to speak into those and and to answer them in ways that many are not answering them today. Father, might you guide us, might you direct us, might you use us as you see fit. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.